Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hey friends, welcome to the podcast, and I'm happy to report that our listeners in countries outside of the U.S. now includes Italy. Yay! I guess someone heard my challenge on a previous podcast to invite a believer living in Italy to tune in. Bellissima! I heard about a burglar that had broken into a house, and as he crept through the living room, he heard a voice say, Jesus is watching you. After a few moments of frozen silence, the burglar slowly crept forward. Jesus is watching you, the voice said again. The burglar stopped and stood very still. Frantically, he looked around the room, and over in a corner, he spotted a cage with a parrot inside. So he asked the parrot, was that you who said Jesus is watching me? Yes, answered the parrot. The burglar was relieved, and he asked the parrot, what's your name? Bernie, said the bird. Well, that's a stupid name for a parrot. What idiot named you Bernie? The parrot said, the same idiot who named the Doberman Jesus. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Anyway, many people today have some form of home security. It may be as basic as having deadbolt locks and others may have a guard dog. Our two dogs are great at barking, but more often than not, they're barking for absolutely no good reason. Some people have alarm systems and security cameras. Cameras are good for watching a video of people stealing delivery packages off your front porch. More and more people are purchasing guns for home defense, and there are even some homes with panic rooms, a secure lockdown room in the house that a family can run into in the case of a home invasion. In our series, Authentic Christianity, we've now arrived at John's second epistle, known as 2 John. In this letter, John addresses the subject of how we can and should protect our home spiritually. The title of this message is Wolves at the Front Door. It's wise to protect our homes physically, but it's even more important to protect them spiritually. So at this time, I'm going to read all of the verses in this short letter, and then we can discuss them further. I'm reading this time around from the New Living Translation. This is a letter from John the Elder. I'm writing to the chosen lady and to her children, whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace, which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. How happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to truth, just as the Father commanded. I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you have heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked so hard to achieve." 
Be diligent so that you will receive a full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your church meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. Greetings from the children of your sister, chosen by God. A couple of things worth noting right up front here. Second and third John are the shortest letters in the New Testament. They're kind of like personal notes or emails or perhaps even like postcards that we might send to someone. Each of these letters contains less than 300 words in the original language. They might also be the least studied books of the New Testament. I mean, it's not that often that we hear messages in either of these epistles, and that's a shame. The author is the Apostle John, and early 2nd century church leaders like Arrhenius and Clement affirmed that this letter was written by him. In addition to that recognition by the early church, John's fingerprints are all over this letter. For example, his writing style in the second epistle is very much like his first epistle. In fact, eight of the 13 verses in this letter are directly or indirectly in 1 John. John identifies himself at the outset as the elder in verse 1, and that title would not only describe his older age, being around his mid-90s, but even more so his position as a recognized and respected spiritual leader. He was the last living apostle of Jesus and the most authoritative voice in the church at the end of the first century. We don't know the exact date of when he wrote this, but it was right after his first epistle, so probably around AD 95. It's almost certain that John was living in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, and Ephesus was where he eventually died. Another topic of discussion related to this letter is who John was writing to. In verse 1, it's addressed to the elect lady or chosen lady and her children. The question is whether John was actually writing to a woman and her children or if this was a reference to a church and its congregation, like a sister church, and the children would be the believers in that church. The majority of commentators are of the opinion that John was actually writing to a woman and her family. If that's the case, then it's the only book in the Bible addressed to a woman. Warren Wiersbe suggests that the answer is perhaps both. John was writing to an actual lady, and it was in her home that a local church was meeting. All of the churches met in homes in the first few centuries before they began meeting in church buildings, that started happening in about the 4th century. John was perhaps writing to her and her family, as well as to the believers meeting in her home. At different points in this letter, John's words move from singular to plural, which supports the idea that he was writing to this lady as well as other people. Back in Acts 16, Paul's first convert in Greece, Macedonia, which is Greece, was a woman named Lydia. We read that after she and her household believed and were baptized, that Lydia opened up her home for Paul and the others to stay. First, Lydia opened up her heart, and then she opened up her home, which may have been what happened here with this woman. 
Now, I only mention this as sort of a point of interest. There have been those who have speculated about the identity of this woman, and one of, the, one of those speculations is that she was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Remember, it was John who had been entrusted with Mary's care by Jesus at the cross, and tradition states that John took her with him to live in Ephesus. Since no husband is mentioned here, this woman was probably a widow, as Mary was. If this was indeed Mary, then the title of elect lady would be very fitting for the Lord's mother. However, she also would have been well over 100 years old, so in my opinion, this seems unlikely. Another suggestion is that she may have been Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus. One scholar states that the Greek word for lady can also be translated as Martha in Hebrew. If this suggestion has any merit to it, then down in verse 13, when John sends his greetings to uh, this woman's elect sister, well, that could be a reference to Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha. Once again, it's interesting to consider, but we simply don't have enough information to draw any certain conclusions. We want to remember from all of our studies in 1 John that John was writing for a number of reasons, but one of the main ones was to combat Gnosticism, a fast-spreading heresy there at the end of the first century. We'll talk more about the connection with Gnosticism and this letter in just a few moments. But right now, I'm dividing this short letter up into three sections, and we're going to begin in verses 1 to 3 with our first point, the way of truth. John uses the word truth five times in the first four verses. Clearly, that's his theme in this letter. I think a lot of you probably saw the movie A Few Good Men, and Tom Cruise is a military lawyer who's questioning an uncooperative colonel on the stand, played by Jack Nicholson. As the courtroom drama intensifies, Cruise's character yells at Nicholson on the stand, I want the truth, to which Nicholson's character responds, you can't handle the truth. Well, a lot of people can't handle the truth, and Pontius Pilate was certainly an example of that. As Jesus stood before him, he said to the Roman governor, I bear witness to the truth. And Pilate's cynical response was, what is truth? And then he didn't even bother to wait for an answer because he was just being sarcastic. Pilate certainly knew the truth of Jesus' innocence, because he himself stated three times in the Gospel of John, I think it's chapters 18 and 19, that he could find no fault in Jesus. And yet, Pilate still handed him over to be crucified in response to the political pressures that were coming against him. To please the crowds that day, you'll remember, Pilate released Barabbas and he had Jesus crucified. It's important to remember that the crowd chose Barabbas that day, not because they loved him, but because they hated the truth. As John addresses this woman, who is a sister in Christ to him, he refers to her as the one whom I love in truth. Now, John is being careful in his choice of words. He's making his intentions proper and pure. He uses the word agape for love. So John's love for her was not social or even sentimental. It was spiritual. What bonded them together was spiritual truth and Christian love. Some believers emphasize love at the expense of truth, while others emphasize truth at the expense of love. But John, and really the Bible, reminds us that truth and love must always go together. John further describes it in verse 2 as the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
The truth he's referring to is the living word, Jesus, and the written word, Scripture. One day after a Sunday church service in Southern California, a man approached Pastor Chuck Swindoll and said to him, I've been waiting here until you were done talking to everyone else. I have a question for you, and it's going to take some time. Today and many other times, you've spoken about truth, and my question to you is, what is truth? Swindoll held up his Bible to the man and replied, truth is everything contained between these two covers. Well, I guess that conversation ended up being shorter than that man thought it would be. In the classroom setting of one of the popular Peanuts comic strips, on the first day of the new school year, the students were asked to write an essay about returning to class. In her essay, Lucy wrote that, Vacations are nice, but it's good to get back to school. There's nothing more satisfying than education, and I look forward to another year of expanding knowledge. Needless to say, the teacher was quite pleased with Lucy's essay, and she complimented her in front of the entire class. In the final frame of that cartoon strip, Lucy leans over to Charlie Brown and whispers, After a while, you learn what sells. The Apostle John wasn't interested in what sells, but rather in the truth that saves. In verse 3, John's greeting consists of grace, mercy, and peace from the Father and the Son. The order of those three words is significant because it lays out the path to our salvation. First, it's the grace of God that reaches out to us with the gospel and reveals our sin and impending judgment. Then when we respond to God's grace by faith, his mercy provides forgiveness of our sins, takes away that punishment. As a result, we experience the peace of God and peace with God in a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Now coming to verses four and six, we find our second point, the walk of truth. In verse four, walking in truth simply describes living in obedience to God's word. John expresses his great joy at hearing that some of the woman's children were walking in truth. Now, this doesn't mean that some of her children weren't. It simply indicates that John was personally aware about the faith of some of her children. One of the best ways to protect our homes spiritually is to make sure our families and our homes are governed by God's word. This woman had taught the truth to her children, and now they were walking in that truth. One of the greatest responsibilities and privileges we have as believers is to raise our children in the Lord. Every generation of believers is raising the next generation of believers. And listen carefully, please. If we don't teach our children to follow Jesus Christ, the world will teach them not to. Then in verse 4, for the fifth time, we find the word truth. And let's talk for a moment about well, some of the responsibilities that we have as Christians when it comes to the truth about Jesus and Scripture. There's probably many more. Here's four that come to mind. First off, we need to know the truth. Sadly, there are many believers who have been saved for several years, maybe decades, and yet they still don't really have a handle on the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Peter wrote that we have a responsibility to not only know what we believe, but why we believe it, and to be prepared to explain what we believe and why we believe it to anyone who asks us about our faith. 
Over in Hebrews 6, the writer exhorted immature believers that he was writing to to get beyond the basic doctrines of faith, moving on to spiritual maturity. So every believer who's been walking with the Lord for enough time is responsible to understand the basic doctrines and to be able to explain them and defend them to someone. Another responsibility we have is to walk in the truth. Once again, this describes obedience to God's word. You might note that this section begins and ends with an emphasis on obedience. This again touches on another problem with immature believers. Some of them may know the truth, but they fail to live by it. They don't obey it. They don't practice it in their own lives. That's a very dangerous place to be. In the Old Testament, Lot, King Saul, Jonah, and many others, but they all learned that lesson the hard way. Thirdly, then, we have a responsibility to protect the truth. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this as it pertains to the area of hospitality in just a moment. But we need to protect the truth. Alan Redpath rightly said, there is no winning without warfare. Jude reminds us about our need to contend earnestly for the faith. One of the interesting things about Jude's epistle, which appears in the New Testament right after these three epistles from John, is that Jude was going to write about the common salvation that all believers share. But then he said that it had become necessary for him to write about contending earnestly for the faith. Again, that's because the heresy of Gnosticism was running rampant. Interestingly, it's the only time in the Bible where we have a writer declaring that he was intending to write about one thing and then felt compelled or led by the Spirit to write about something else. Another responsibility we have then is to share the truth. The gospel is good news and the word of God is truth, so it's not only our privilege but our responsibility to share it with others. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to be both salt and light in the world. And at his ascension, Jesus commissioned his followers, including us, to become witnesses to a lost world. Now, when it comes to our obedience for walking in the truth, nothing is more important than the commandments to love God and to love one another, as John emphasizes here in verses 5 and 6. In fact, no other New Testament writer talks more about love than John does. John himself, as you'll recall, had been radically transformed by the love of God through Jesus. Loving God and loving others are the two greatest commandments. And so, by way of application in our own lives as believers, do people know us by our love, or is he maybe the grumpy guy? Do people know us by our kindness, or do people consider her to be cold? People look at us, and we are witnesses, and it's important that we reflect the love of God. This brings us to verses 7 through 11, and to our third point, the warning of truth. We're getting now to the main concern that John has been building up to in this letter, and it's the danger of helping false teachers in the area of hospitality. It's worth noting that every New Testament writer sounds the warning to believers about false teachers and heresies. Vance Havner was right on target when he said, and I quote, somehow the idea has gotten around that it's unchristian to take a stand against heresy. Some of us need to read the New Testament again. 
In general, John is talking about religious deceivers, specifically, it's easy for you to say, specifically, he identifies those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So once again, John is confronting, clearly, the heresy of Gnosticism. As we discussed previously on different occasions, the Gnostics falsely taught that it was impossible for humanity, a human body, and deity to coexist in the same person. Therefore, they denied that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In their case, they denied the humanity of Jesus. Obviously, if you, de- if you deny the humanity of Jesus, you're also denying his virgin birth, his physical death, his bodily resurrection, and so forth. So as John very specifically says, watch out for those, note, who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, in case some of us are thinking, well, this was Gnosticism. This came and went hundreds of years ago. Therefore, it doesn't apply to us today. Listen, we have similar heresies in the cults today who deny the truth about Jesus. In fact, probably one of the most major underlying identifications of what a cult is, is that they deny the truth or change the truth about Jesus. In many areas, they love to come knocking on your front door, trying to promote another Jesus, which then is, as Paul says in Galatians, another gospel. This not only happens in the cults, but listen, in popular churches as well. The pastor of one of the largest and most popular churches today, who has made many unbiblical statements, he told his congregation, and I quote, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. Don't be fooled by that. That's typical word faith statement. My Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Also notice in verse 7 that these many deceivers go out into the world, so they're not content to have their own churches and meeting places. They go out actively deceiving people. And John pulls no punches, and he writes, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. As deceivers, they're the enemy of people, and as antichrists, they're the enemy of God. Many of us have heard about that famous statement that was made to Harry S. Truman during his political presidential campaign. Someone yelled out, give him hell, Harry. But most of us probably are not familiar with Truman's reply. This is what he said. I never give them hell. I just tell them the truth and they think it's hell. That sounds a lot like John here in these verses. Either way, if these deceivers are unsaved, We need to pray for their salvation. And if they are saved, if they're teaching error, as many are today, we need to pray that they will recognize their error, take responsibility, repent, and begin to teach sound doctrine. Now, before we continue in this important section, let's remind ourselves that during this time, you know, we're at the end of the first century, the New Testament was not complete. And Christians didn't have printed Bibles in hand like we do today. So the church was dependent upon pastor teachers to feed them spiritually and to help them to grow in their faith. Traveling preachers and teachers made their way around to various churches. In their travels, there weren't many inns or places to stay, and many of what was out there were oftentimes dangerous. So in the early church, traveling preachers, teachers, 
missionaries, and apostles relied heavily on the hospitality of other believers. Believers would give them a place to stay and a meal to eat. At the same time, churches were meeting in the larger homes of believers who could host the church gatherings. So, no surprise, false teachers took advantage of this Christian hospitality, not only for shelter and food, but worse yet, to spread their false doctrines like the Gnostics. And so then, John's writing this letter to a sister in Christ, a woman he knows and loves in the Lord. Not only was she one of these believers giving hospitality to traveling ministers, but as we discussed earlier, she may very well have been hosting weekly church services in her home. And as we'll soon see, or as we've already really read, she was somewhat naive and therefore vulnerable in the area of providing hospitality to false teachers. She kind of lacked discernment. So John is attempting to be gentle and kind with her, but at the same time to clearly warn her and instruct her about the serious dangers of helping false teachers. In verse 8, John exhorts her and the others not to lose what they've worked for. And again, for the record, John's not talking about losing their salvation, because then he goes on to talk about rewards, and that's what he's talking about. She had the spiritual gift of hospitality, and she was using it faithfully and regularly. I'm guessing that John had probably personally experienced the blessing of her hospitality in his own travels. But John is also warning her not to lose her reward by giving hospitality to false teachers. Again, she was a bit naive in the department of discernment and in her desire to help others. John had already spoken to her about the importance of truth and love working together. She had a great love for God and for God's people, but she needed to exercise that love within the proper boundaries and parameters of truth. John instructs her in verse 9 that the person who does not abide in the truths of Jesus does not have God. They're unsaved. So make no mistake about it. The cults who come knocking on your door on Saturday morning do not believe in the biblical truths about Jesus, and therefore they are wolves at your front door. They're not innocent. They're not merely misguided. They're very intentional. They are denying the truth about Jesus, who is the only way to salvation in heaven. Oh, they'll tell you we believe in the same Jesus, but they don't. And maybe you don't live in an area where the cults come knocking at your front door. But let me say this, the warning could also apply to, for example, allowing the TV programs of false teachers into your home. If you're listening to them, then you're exposing yourself and to those in your household to false teaching. You're letting the wolves into your home. In verses 10 and 11, John is pretty clear here about our interaction with deceivers and antichrists who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he says, have nothing to do with them. Don't even say God bless you, even if they sneeze. Anything we do to help them or bless them means that we're now partaking and sharing in their evil deeds. These are not my words. These are God's words. And so definitely don't allow them into your house. And at the same time, don't even say, you know, have a nice day. Don't even say goodbye. You think, well, come on, Jeff, that's a little radical. But listen, our modern day expression of goodbye actually has evolved over the years from the original expression, God be with you. You can pray for them to be saved, pray for their salvation, but don't bless them. Well, in the final two verses, John doesn't want to end this letter on an unpleasant note, so he adds some closing warm remarks. 
He sends his sincere wishes to, in the future, see this woman face to face. And he also sends greetings from the children of her sister. Again, this may have been a literal sister, or perhaps it was believers from a sister church. Well, let's wrap up this message with three quick takeaway points, if I may. Number one, govern your home by God's word. How we raise our children, how we treat one another, the decisions that we make, the things we watch and don't watch on TV, we must filter everything through the truth of Scripture. Secondly, love and truth must work together. We want to be loving, but not ever at the expense of truth. Listen, truth-telling is more important than peacekeeping. And then thirdly, guard yourself against error. What you believe determines how you behave. It's imperative for us to know God's word, to obey it, and then to guard ourselves against error and deceit. Well, thanks for tuning in. And until our next podcast, may the Lord bless you.